Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're going to read verses 42 through 47 and the first verse of chapter 3. That's going to be on page 780 if you're using one of the Bibles we have provided. Uh, we're going to, I'm going to get to explaining and applying to our church the elements of ministry that we're going to see in the, the most famous and beautiful summary of God's first church as they begin to gather and then go. They gather together and begin to go out individually, but oftentimes two by two. So first what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the passage. Then I'm going to immediately follow it with a song, kind of a a music video. And then I'm going to ask you a heart-level question. So passage, song, and then get ready for a heart-level question I'm going to ask you. So pay attention, please, as we read 1 Acts 2, verses 42-47 in chapter 3, verse 1. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now Acts 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. I know that there are people watching this video and in this room who are not trusting Jesus Christ and therefore can only expect condemnation. And so I'm just going to plead with you. Lay down that rebellion. Lay it down. And simply embrace the gospel that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the righteous one, died for your sins. He was raised on the third day, triumphant over all his enemies. He reigns until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. Forgiveness of sins and a right standing with God comes freely through Him alone, 
by faith alone. promised you a question. That's this. Which gripped your heart more? The passage I read or the gospel song you just heard? I'll be honest. It's okay. You're not going to hurt my feelings as much as you love God's Word and tolerate my reading it. And I know I'm no James Earl Jones or Morgan Freeman up here reading this. Acts chapter 2. Right? What, what gripped you was likely the gospel song. That was written, by the way, by Bob Coughlin and Drew Jones. But what if I had reversed the order? What if I had reversed the order? Your heart was gripped either anew for the first time by the gospel, the good news about Jesus and what he's done for you. Chances are the activity of the early church would have stood a chance to equally grip you, to equally inspire you. The reality is, God knows the right order. Gospel first, vibrant church activity second. It's the same order in the book of Acts. It's the same order for the first 3,000 souls added to God's family. In chapter 2, as we saw last week, Peter stands up and boldly declares the plain gospel. Holy God and love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross, he took my sin and by his death. I live again, right? Because he lives. Look at the response of those who heard that plain gospel, who entrust their lives to Jesus. Look at this, Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Flip back there if you would. Now, when they heard this gospel, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? And of course, what shall we do? They turned from their old saviors, their old ways and lives that they thought would satisfy them and turn to a new Savior, to Jesus. They trust Him, and then they're free to love. Free to love radically. Why am I making such a big deal about something we looked at last week? Because nearly every Christian wants the kind of gathering and the going boldly of the early church. Yet, they don't really know how to do it, how to tap into that, right? Nobody says, nobody reads this passage in Acts about people devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, breaking bread together, praying together, all coming upon every soul. 
people being generous with each other, meeting together in each other's homes. And that's spurring them on. From there, they go out like Peter and John do. Pray for a man for healing and tell him about Jesus. No one hears about that and thinks, eh. And if you do think, I could do without that, then you may want to check the level of your spiritual vitality. Whether, in fact, the Spirit of God lives within you because it is an inspiring passage. We all, I think, want that, but can't do it. Why? Because there's no heart behind it. We tend to read Acts chapter 2 and either aspire or complain. Chances are, you, when you read Acts 2, you think to yourself, like many have before, yes, let's go sunrise. Or you think, why isn't sunrise more like this? And we try, by the way. God knows I have, like, rolling out vision according to this devoting themselves to the apostles' preaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers, agendas for elder or staff, retreats, outlines for sermon series, small group missions. Mostly it serves as a measuring stick that millions of churches, both now and before us, have never been able to live up to. Acts chapter 2. The Acts 2 church. That's because we can't just lift the end of Acts 2 and paste it on a wall, on a brochure, a screen, agenda, plastic cup, t-shirt, koozie, or mouse pad, and expect good Christians to get in line and say, yes, we're going to live it out now. There's no power behind that. There's no enabling behind that. Rather, what we need to do is apply the grace-fueled, heart-cutting gospel truth that launches the radical action we read here. That's the message in a nutshell. When you gather together and go your merry way on mission, gather around the gospel and go with the gospel. Otherwise, it's powerless. Otherwise, we'll fail. Otherwise, there'll just be a neat set of goals, Acts chapter 2, verses 242 through 47. In a brochure, on a wall, on church pens, but not actually lived out. Unless we gather around the gospel and we go with the gospel. See guys, Acts is one big pattern of gathering and going. What we read here in Acts 2, 14-47 is the first of eight summaries in Acts where Luke basically stops and says, yes, Stephen gets martyred for his faith. Saul was persecuting an Ethiopian eunuch, trust Jesus. Paul went here, there, and everywhere, but mostly the church was gathering. And so Luke kind of stops us to see like, but see what, what was going on in the regular hours was the church was gathering and being generous and encouraging, breaking bread together, and then from there launching into going two by two to tell others about Jesus. After gathering, that's when they went. Two by two usually, which is why I included chapter 3, verse 1. Peter and John go together. What we'll do this morning, what I want to do this morning is examine what churches look like gathering and going with the gospel and without it. Because there's two ways for churches to get on mission, for me to encourage you, for you to be inspired. It's by exhortation and setting up plans and getting committees together. In and of itself, those things do nothing. There's a way to do that powered by the gospel. So let's look at both here. So let's start with the first church in response. Church responding to the gospel by gathering, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Read with me, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayers. Without the gospel, here's what you get. 
You get empty exhortations around routine presentations producing infrequent inspiration. I had a very good time writing that, by the way. There, there are, there, yeah, say it three times fast, all right. There, there, are, there are preachers, Bible study, small group leaders, Christians who love the Bible, but somehow miss that all of it is either preparing for Jesus, presenting Jesus, or teaching us how to participate with Jesus. It's all from Genesis to Revelation about Jesus and this good news about him, the gospel. So what will happen is for many, the Bible is just a list of moral maxims, life hacks, or ways to earn extra credit with God. So oftentimes you'll exhort, people will exhort and encourage themselves and others using various shades of good, various shades of here's how practical this is, various shades of oughtas and shouldas, you mustas, you, you gotstas, and that's what's presented for people to get moving in their Christian lives. The result, though, is people who look down on others who aren't as moral, which ironically, of course, makes them less moral, <laughs> Right? Christians who waver as they use whatever works, right? Whatever's practical, whatever works, even if it's elements of Jesus plus other things. Christians exhausted trying to please a perfect God. The presentation of truth gets routine and stale. I once heard a preacher I really admire, a guy named Martin Lord Jones, say, I never want to get into the pulpit. This is the pulpit. I never want to get into the pulpit because I was there last week. I don't want that to ever become the reason why I stand up here. Preachers burn out when they preach because they just did it last Sunday. And Christians burn out when they read the Bible, when they pray, because they did so yesterday. That's why I'll do it. I'll just do what i got to do. Every once in a while, when you're around a church without the gospel at the center, you'll, you'll get inspired by a story, a testimony, a good idea. But nothing works at the heart level, like the heart-rending, gut-wrenching gospel truth that God came down to take my place and die. My place. Nothing continually cuts the heart like that truth. One of the great men who died for this truth, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, once said, the cross is God's truth about us, and therefore it is the only power which can make us truthful. When we know the cross, we are no longer afraid of the truth. Think of that statement. We can be, as a community, utterly honest because the cross took care of getting judged one day because all that is mean and nasty in us. Right? The cross took care of that. It guaranteed, it is God's sign that you will not be judged someday because of all that's mean, all that's nasty, all your ill motives, wrong intentions, misplaced words, hurtful comments, hardened hearts. And so it frees us to be honest, to be true about our lives, which is what we see happen here in Acts chapter 2 and can happen in our church as well. Now when you get around the gospel though, when you gather around the gospel, we see a devotion to a fiery truth. They devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. And so do we, by the way, what we have in the New Testament. The word translated devotion carries with it the sense of persist obstinately in something. 
To persist stubbornly in something, which is appropriate here, right? Because when you're confident that everything you hear from the apostles, everything you read, will ultimately result in good news, even if it's hard to hear at first, right? And some truth is, some truth gets to us, we're like, yeah, I need, ah, that hurts. We can be confident that ultimately it's for our good. Ultimately it results in good news that even though you fell short of that, Jesus died in your place for that. So we want to persist obstinately in getting around it and around those who share that kind of good news because it's a salve to our souls. It's a balm where we're hurting the most. Not just truth, though. Truth on fire, right? Truth accompanied by power. Look with me there in verse 43. And all came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Wonders and signs. Why were these done? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 through 4 tell, tells us. Later in the New Testament, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Being saved by Jesus through this good news that he died for us. It was declared at first by the Lord. That's the Lord Jesus. It was attested to us by those who heard. That's the apostles. While, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. And by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. In other words, power is the great apologetic that highlights the gospel. The Holy Spirit loves more than anything to highlight the gospel about Jesus. The good news about Jesus. So he often accompanies it with pop. It's not meaningless pop. It's not the kind of pop you see with televangelists who throw their sport coats on people and they fall over. And they go, praise the Lord. Right? Not that kind of pop for no reason. It's the kind of pop that accompanies the good news about Jesus. So I want to encourage you to get around, gather around teaching and teachers, exhortations and exhorters who remind you of the good news about Jesus. That's where you're going to find the pop and the power. When you gather without the gospel, another thing you see is phony smiles and polished programs. Now, who here has ever flashed a smile at church they didn't mean? Who here has ever flashed a smile at church they didn't mean? I'm going to be the first to raise my hand. Really? Oh my gosh. That, you guys are amazing. So, you guys are so, I love it. So sanctified, so holy. I raise my hand. I think most of us have. But when that becomes the norm, it's a pretty accurate sign that we've, we're starting to, to just work instead of rely on grace. That we're starting to rely on religion instead of a relationship. When you're always feeling like, yeah, I'm coming, but it's work for me to be at church. It's, it's hard. It's, it's just, I know I need to be there and do my Christian thing. That is not why Jesus died. That is not grace, my friends. That is works. That is religion. The cross, remember, is God's truth about us. It is that singular power which can free us to just be ourselves no matter what emotional state you come to in church. So I want to encourage you guys. Feel free to frown on Sundays. Feel free. Feel released to frown on Sundays. Just just come to us while you sulk. Come to us while you sulk. Jesus died for Debbie Downers. All right? Jesus died for Debbie Downers. It's the phony Pharisees he had a problem with. Right? 
Come however you are. The problem usually is when people are down, when they don't want to get out of bed, and they say, church is the last place I want to be. Well, that's a church that doesn't gather around the gospel. I want to be a church that says, man, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you came in your slippers and your PJs. One person came down here in their diving suit one time. Like, all right, whatever. We're glad you're here. Crying, sad, morose, expressionless, or full of joy. This is the kind of place you can be because of the cross. The cross says you can be honest about your life because Jesus died for all the mean and nasty things in it. Just as there is nothing wrong, though, with smiles, nor is there anything wrong with polished programs. The temptation, though, is to rely, for churches to rely on the latest ministry methods, the most efficient volunteer training, and the multiplication of programs to produce disciples like Jesus commands us to do. That's a temptation for any church, particularly large churches, but any church. Whether it's community groups, whether it's our children's ministry, our Georgetown Primary School Outreach, or just equipping you to share Jesus with a friend, neighbor, co-worker, our leadership aims to rely on the ever-redeeming gospel to make an ever-increasing investment rather than just add more programs. Let's do another thing. No, it's let's draw on the gospel to make us invest more in what we're already doing. It doesn't mean we'll never do something new or try something new, but we want to draw on the gospel to do what we do well. So Katie and I meet more frequently now with our community group leaders to give them support. Pastor Brett has ramped up relational input into leaders and parents of children and family ministries. We're sticking with the now third administration of our outreach to Georgetown Primary School. The the third administration running that over there. But we've added financial investment to it. The elders are praying for leadership vacancies among our worship and hospitality teams. My point is, it's not just about adding new things. It's about relying on the gospel and the power of it to make investments in the things we're already doing. To remind people they've been giving gifts through the gospel and through the Holy Spirit to serve and expand what God's already put on our hearts to do. When you gather around the gospel, what you'll see is devotion to generous commonality. I was tempted to say generous fellowship or generous community, but I want to explain why. It's devotion to generous commonality. When Luke describes the church as persistently op, you know, and obstinately in fellowship, that word translated fellowship in verse 42 is koinonia, which literally means to hold something in common. So it's like when you might share in common with someone a workspace, right? Or a favorite sports team or a favorite genre of music. You hold something in common. Guys, the gospel has no limits. It's this inexhaustible supply of love and patience and power because that's what God shows to us in Jesus Christ. And when you have that in common, when you have the gospel in common, there's no limit to potential generosity. It's always possible to be giving and giving. And it's possible to graciously receive because you know it all comes from one place and empowered by one person. It's interesting to note that koinonia has a closely related cousin in the Greek language, koinonikos, which means generous, which is not surprising when you read that the gospel produces this freely distributed generosity. That's what people have in common. They have the gospel in common, and they koinonikos, they're generous with others, towards others and towards God. Because when you share in common 
something that produces limitless joy, you're free to do what's described in verses 44 through 47. Look at that. All who believe were together and had all things, look at that, in common. They were selling their possessions, their belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in homes, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, which means somebody was making the food. Praise God for those people. Praising God, having favor with all the people. When you rely, you gather around the gospel, there's this limitless supply of power, of love, of patience, which allows us to be generous with one another and towards God. It's a beautiful thing. It also gives you the courage, obviously, to ask a stranger what's so beneficial and how they've been blessed by community groups like you did this morning. But this newly minted Jerusalem Community Church, JCC, I'm sure as they called it, is, is not only a church that its people gather to, it's a church they go from. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, about 3 p.m. And going together... They go to pray for a man to receive a taste of the healing and the restoration the gospel offers. Then they share that gospel with him and everybody else listening. Peter and John unknowingly start a trend in doing so. But let me say something first about this. They're going up to the temple. It's very interesting. I asked myself the question studying this passage. Why did they go to the temple any longer if they know Jesus? Is it because they want to keep their uh, Jewish religion that part of their life going? Like have kind of Judaism and Christianity for one super religion combined? Is it because they want to evangelize? They had this strategy. We're going to evangelize the temple at first. That does eventually happen. But I don't think that's their motivation at first. Scholars seem to agree that the motivation is they just keep on doing what they're normally doing. That's important. Well, I'll explain it in a minute. But they also go two by two. They start this pattern unknowingly. And that's what we actually see Throughout Acts, James and John here in chapter 3 go together to share Jesus with others. Paul and Barnabas, chapters 13 and 14. Barnabas and John Mark, Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy, Priscilla and Aquila, who in Acts chapter 18 shared the gospel with a man named Apollos. None of which should surprise us because Jesus himself sent the apostles out two by two. Remember with a little handbag and a staff and no money? When you go without the gospel, let's say I just encouraged you. Why aren't you sharing your faith with others? I exhorted you. Why don't you get to sharing your testimony at your workplace or over lunch with folks? Without the gospel to empower that, it becomes what? Unnatural? Timid? Right? Carried out with this vague sense of guilt like, man, I really should share my faith more. How many times have you said that? I don't even think I need to give an illustration or examples. Can we agree? That's what usually happens when we want to share Jesus if it's not empowered by the gospel. When we go with the gospel, it's naturally supernatural. James and John, I mentioned, do what they normally do, which is go to the temple. They just keep doing it. Look in verse 46. Day by day, they were attending the temple together. And then chapter 3, verse 1, they go with one another to the temple. James and John, up to the temple. It's interesting, they keep going to the temple, just like some of us, after becoming Christians, keep going to our jobs. We keep going to you know, anniversary parties for Gam gams and grandpa, right? We, we keep going to our kids' games and driving them to and from school. We keep doing the things we normally do. We just do them differently. 
When you gather around the gospel, then it's most natural that the sacrificial love of Jesus goes with you wherever you go. If it's real and if it's genuine, what, I, what I'm suggesting is simply what I observe here in Acts chapter 2 and 3. That if you gather around the gospel, and that shows up in what you hear, what you say, how you live, how you give, how you forgive, and you watch it supernaturally transform your life, then it's natural to want to give away this inexhaustible good news to others as you go through life. Just natural. You go from speaking it to encouraging it to living it out here in community groups, then in your life, then you give it away as you go to others, just like Peter and John did. Gathering around the gospel leads to going with the gospel. Now, let me just close with a few ways you can get yourself gathered around the gospel. Number one, pray for change. I'm going to say pray for change, take part in change, be the change, but first pray for change. Please keep myself, Pastor Brett, the other elders in prayer. Pray for me that the the heart-piercing gospel would present and show up with life whenever I preach and teach. Please do that. Please also pray for our ministry team leaders, our community group leaders, that they would lead with words and with the deeds of life that the good news presents. They would lead with the gospel that what they would say would be good news and encouragement and love and how they would lead would look likewise. Same thing for all of us who are Christians, especially all all of you who are somehow serving in the church with your gifts and talents, that that would communicate love and grace and mercy that you, you serve others. Pray that we would serve others, not so we would feel good about ourselves or to get compliments back or none of those things. To give a little taste of the gospel of Jesus Christ to someone else. Take part in change. Join a community group if you haven't yet. The best way to be practicing what we see here in Acts chapter 2, 43-47, is committing to being part of a smaller group gathering, a smaller gospel gathering in which others refine you with gospel truths and you get refined with people speaking gospel truths into your life. Regularly demonstrating generosity towards others and regularly demonstrating generosity towards God with other people. Sign up. Take a moment in the back. I stuck that table almost right in front of the door so you couldn't go past it without looking. Take a look. Finally, be the change. I want to speak for a moment here to those married and with kids because all of you who are married and with kids, you have the possibility of Acts chapter 2 in your home. You have a church meeting in your home with your spouse, with your spouse and your kids. Katie and I try to make our home a gospel-centered gathering. Believe me, very imperfectly, very much with stumbling, messing up. I didn't learn about how to do this, how to create this environment in our family in seminary or going to a week-long seminar or anything like that. I just, we just try to simply display what we've learned about the gospel of Jesus with our lives but also in the way we live. Well, actually, most importantly, is probably forgiving one another. Katie and I forgiving one another in front of our kids and then asking forgiveness of our kids. When we mess up, we try to model that. And there's plenty of opportunities in our lives to model that. I had to do it yesterday with Gage, our youngest. Let the gospel fuel generosity towards your spouse, your kids, without spoiling them. We try to do this not only giving them occasional gifts, but with your time especially, with a listening ear, just being willing to play. Speak the gospel both routinely. We do this 
both through uh, nightly worship. That's our routine. Family worship, we have a little fun gospel song. Do-do-do-do-do-do. Kind of, it's a little, a little up and down. It's bouncy. We have a Bible story, which we try to connect the truth to the gospel. And we pray for God's help to do what we just read. Simple. God help us. We also try to do this when the opportunity arises to implement the gospel when our kids come home and something another kid has said to them challenges gospel truth and we try to challenge them back and say, how does that line up with what Jesus says? How does that line up with what Jesus did? When they watch a movie, how does this fit in to the way God runs the world and runs our life? I want to just encourage you encourage you, God uses imperfect, gospel-centered gatherings like churches, groups, and yes, your home. That's a great place to start. My eldest son, Mason, is the quietest among us and our family, our little family. It's not always easy to know what's going on in that brain of his, or that heart. This summer, his grandparents let him pick out his first Bible that he's gotten since preschool, which sounds a little cruel of us. His preschool Bible is very advanced. Why, but he got his first Bible since preschool and he's been reading it this summer, which you know is like, oh man, that's, that's so cool. And yeah, Pastor Dad did not recommend it. I didn't even know he had the Bible for like a few weeks. He's been reading it every morning and I would show it to you, except he doesn't have it anymore. See, when he was invited to his, his best friend's birthday party, uh, a dear friend whom he's known for five and a half years who doesn't know Jesus, nor to his really great bright parents. He decided to wrap up his new leather Bible and he he gave it away yesterday. And uh, we caught him writing in it and I later asked him, I said, me buddy, what did you write to? Remember his 11-year-old buddy, 11-year-old boy. And he wrote in there, uh, this is the most important book you'll ever read. Uh, Your your BFF. Mason, I believe, imperfectly, it's because he's been gathered to the gospel, and by the grace of God, he found it natural to go to a friend with the gospel. So might we, guys. Let's pray. God, we don't want to be people who just, um, who just play church, who just play religion, who, who look at the Bible and say, oh yeah, let, let's, let's try to do this. If we just try hard enough, work hard enough, inspire one another enough, sing enough good songs, have hip worship leaders, a relatively relevant pastor, we don't want to play church. We want the power. We want the inexhaustible supply of love, of grace, and patience that's offered through the gospel. When we gather together, we want to do so being cut to the heart of what we see about Jesus so we can be open with one another, so we can pray for one another, so we can be generous to one another and to you. And when we go out, we want to go with that same gospel, empowered, living it, doing things like giving Bibles away, sharing with others the birth line that we looked at a few weeks ago, having conversations about Jesus, not because we have to, not because we ought to, not because we should or we could have, but because we know that this is a free gift. We know that this could change a person's life just like it's changed ours. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.